Before we come to God's Word this morning, I'd invite you to join me in our confession. It's from Lord's Day 49 of the Heidelberg Catechism and deals with the third petition of the Lord's Prayer. We've been going through the Catechism over the last couple years. We're in the very last section of the Catechism, which deals with the Lord's Prayer. And uh, we've spent some time in looking at the Lord's Prayer, particularly from its first century Jewish setting. What did prayer look like? What did what was prayer? What, what is Jesus teaching us in these petitions about how to pray? There's a lot that's packed in into these petitions if we understand the background. And then we've reminded ourselves that we pray to our Father, our loving God who wants to do what we ask Him to do, but He's also our Father in heaven who has all power to do so. And then the first three petitions deal with God. That we want to sanctify his name by the way we live, by the way we act, by the way we speak. And that we want his kingdom to more fully come and his will to more fully be done. And it's that third petition that we're going to look at. So let's read that responsively. What does the third petition of the Lord's Prayer mean? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven means help us and all people to reject our own wills and to obey your will without any backtalk. Your will alone is good. Help us, one and all, to carry out the work we are called to, as willingly and faithfully as the angels in heaven. And then we're going to look at two scripture passages. They'll both be on the screen. The first is from Matthew 6, which is the one that we've been looking at uh, over the, last, the course of the last several weeks, and then we're going to also look at Luke 22. Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches his disciples at their request what they should pray. He says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And our focus is going to be on the third petition, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done. And so with that in mind, I want to look, to look at Luke 22, beginning at verse 39. Luke 22, where we see that petition and the prayer that most exemplifies what it means to pray, your will be done. Luke 22, verses 39 to 46. Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw from them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing... Take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray, so that you will not fall into temptation. Would you join me in prayer before we look at this word? <clears throat> we pray, Holy Spirit, that as we listen to these words of Jesus and think about what they mean, 
how he wants us to pray. That you might not only help us understand the words, but you who preserved and helped authors write these words, that you might now take them and inspire them to each one of our lives so that we might not just know in general what it means to pray, may your will be done, but that we might know specifically in each of our lives what it means for us, what God wants for us as we pray, may your will be done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time we looked at the petition in the Lord's Prayer, may your kingdom come. And we noted that God's kingdom is, or that the kingdom is God's active rule that happens progressively in the world and in individual lives. The kingdom comes in the world, the kingdom comes in individual lives. And so we said, to pray that petition of the Lord's Prayer means to pray both Jesus continue to rule this world, but also Jesus come and rule my life. We also noted that this next petition, may your will be done, is directly connected to the previous one. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That is, when the will of God is done on earth, the kingship of God, the kingdom of God is expanded. Or as Frederick Buechner puts it, insofar as here and there and now and then God's kingly will is being done in various odd ways among us, even in this moment, the kingdom has come already. But insofar as all the, in the, all the odd ways we do His will at this moment are at best half-baked and half-hearted, the kingdom is still a long way off. And so we pray for the kingdom, a kingdom that's inaugurated when Jesus comes, but will be brought to completion when he comes again. What does it mean in that context to pray then, your kingdom come, your will be done? I want to look at three things. And the first of those we've already mentioned, I want to expand on it, that these two petitions, the second and third petition, are intimately connected. That this petition connects God's will with his kingdom. Your, will be do- your kingdom come, your will be done is Hebrew parallelism. It's a feature of Jewish poetry in which two lines are connected in thought, but the second line reinforces and strengthens and sometimes even furthers the first line. And then, in fact, that prepositional phrase at the end, on earth as it is in heaven, really applies to both of those petitions, your kingdom come and your will be done. That even as God's rule over heaven and its inhabitants, the angels, extend increasingly on earth, we pray, so God's will will increasingly be done by inhabitants on earth as it is being done in heaven. Which means that people do the will of God on earth. If if God's angels, his heavenly messengers, are the ones that carry out his will in and from heaven, God's people do the will of God on earth. And God works through people. And And as people increasingly accept his rule over their lives, which is another idea of what kingdom of God means, to accept his kingship over our lives, they increasingly start to work out the will of God as well. Now, the Jewish people believed in working in concert with God 
to bring about the gradual improvement of society in preparation for the coming of Messiah. Let me unpack that for you a moment. It's especially important in light of the first century because the Jews believed that they were still in exile because the Romans were in control of their land. And, the res- and exile was the result of sin, and so they knew that they had to repent before Messiah would come. So that's what John the Baptist is doing. He's calling them to repent. Jesus even, repent for the kingdom of, of heaven is at hand. But they also believed that they, could, they were called to work together with God for the improvement of society in preparation for Messiah's coming. And in, that was called tikkun olam in the Hebrew, the repair of the world. And we even get a sense of this a little bit from Jesus, for Jesus speaks of the kingdom as a growing movement, the mustard seed, the little bit of yeast that leavens the whole loaf, a gradual progression that's going to climax in his second coming. And he called his disciples to be part of that by living out their faith, not only in the world, but also for the world. Sometimes we we miss that second part. We live out our faith in the world, and we say, well, we've got to stand strong in the midst of this evil world, but we're also called to live out our faith for the world, on behalf of the world. So when we pray, your will be done, we're saying that we want to be part of what Jesus is doing in the world through people. We're saying, Jesus, sign me up. I want to be part of your kingdom and seeing your will be done increasingly. there's another aspect to God's will, and that is it's, it, God's will is about action. <clears throat> now, sometimes we find out what something means better by looking at what it doesn't mean. Last time we did that with the kingdom. We said there are several things that sometimes people think the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is, but we ruled some of those out to get to what, it, what does it really mean. Well, what does may your will be done not mean, first of all? You know, Christians often ask themselves, what is God's will for my life? Isn't that the classic Christian question? What is God's will for my life? And there's lots of books written about this. And sometimes they do, they ask this question and try to discern God's will in very strange ways. One of those books that's written on God's God's will, you can know it, it's called by Leslie and Bernice Flynn, has several illustrations of how you probably should not try to discern the will of God. One, I quote, I've heard of Christians who use the open window method. You put your Bible by a window, and the pages blow. And when it stops, you put your finger on a verse. One man did that and pointed to the verse, Judas went and hanged himself. Not a very good life verse, so he did it again. This time the passage said, go and do likewise. And the third verse he found said, whatsoever you do, do it quickly. Sometimes people use dreams. A college sophomore was in need of a car and had a series of dreams one night, and everything was yellow, everything. Early the next morning, he began to peruse the used car lots, looking at one car after another. Finally, he found God's will for him. A yellow car. Yellow inside and yellow out. He didn't even ask to drive it. He, 
He just bought it. And of course, you know, it turned out to be a lemon. Because what is God's will for my life is so prominent a question that sometimes flavors our interpretation of this petition. But asking about God's will actually was not a very Jewish idea. So it's not likely you'd find a Jewish teacher like Jesus teaching it to Jewish disciples. This petition doesn't deal so much with discerning God's will in life, but doing it. It's about God's will being accomplished by us. And this idea is very Jewish. They were far more concerned about putting faith into action. It's also more biblical. Scripture more often is concerned with doing rather than discerning. In Psalm 40, verse 8, we read, I delight to do your will, O God. Your Torah is within my heart. It doesn't say, I would delight, be delighted to discover your will for my life. It says, no, I, I delight to do your will. Jesus' Jewish disciples didn't have to ask what God's will was. The teaching of Scripture makes God's will clear. And especially as the Holy Spirit applies it to our lives. Our job is to do it when God reveals it to us. But then thirdly, it's about God's will being priority. May your will be done really means what Jesus prayed. Not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Rabbi Gamliel, this is a later one, not Paul's rabbi, used to say, do his will as if it were your will. Now, that's still concerned with the performance of God's will, but it adds the detail that doing God's will often means submitting to his will by letting it overrule our will. That is, God's will takes priority. As that great theologian and former manager of the Tigers, Sparky Anderson, used to say, it's my way or the highway. That's, in a sense, what this petition is about. It's God's way or the highway. So it does not mean to pray, Lord, may it be your will that such and such happens. Lord, may it be your will that this happens to me. And now all of us are thinking, hold on. I prayed that not, re not long ago. I probably prayed it during the congregational prayer. Who knows? We often do that, don't we? Lord, may it be your will that. But, but think about that. That's asking God to agree to our will. No, rather it means making his will ours. So the, when we do ask it that way, we know it's his will. But making his will ours can become a battle within us. A battle as fierce as Paul's battle between the flesh and spirit in Romans 7. And the greatest example of the battle to do the will of God is Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let me read part of that passage again. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. 
An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, clearly, as we look at this scene, there is physical suffering going on. And there's an anticipation of physical suffering in this prayer. Jesus had already predicted his betrayal and his sufferings, and included in that suffering was crucifixion. Now, the brutality of Roman executions was well known. Many, likely even Jesus, had looked directly into the eyes of one being crucified and had seen the agony, the excruciating pain. The Romans used it as a, this kind of execution as a deterrent to crime, but more particularly a deterrent to revolution against them. And so they would do these just outside the wall of the city, outside of a busy gate. Maybe the marketplace is right across the road. And there's a, a small hill, and there are people being crucified there with a name above, with a list above them of their crimes, usually revolutionary sort of, of crimes. And the people that walk by would look directly in their eyes. You know, sometimes we see these movies of Jesus where he and the others are on the cross and they're way up in the air, but that's, that was not the, the way with Roman execution. Usually the, the feet of the one being crucified was just maybe a foot or so off the ground, just enough to get their feet off the ground, but low enough that people could look in their eyes and see the agony, see the excruciating pain. In fact, the word excruciating itself comes from this event, excrucius, out of the cross. They, the, the agony was so painful, they had to invent a new word for the type of pain that came with this kind of death. So for Jesus to have witnessed a, a crucifixion for anyone, to have witnessed a cru crucifixion was to make a, a person cower. And of course, that was the point. It was a deterrent. And we have to remember that while Jesus was fully God, Jesus was also fully human. He was fully human, and, and he had human feelings, and he suffered human pain, and, and he dealt with even probably human thinking. And so to submit to the cross went against his every human instinct for survival. Now, Matthew and Mark record the words that Jesus explains his suffering. He says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Have you ever had a time when you were in such agony that you just said, I just want to die? That's kind of what Jesus is saying here. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Luke doesn't use that phrase. Luke, who was a medical doctor, simply shows the agony. Jesus is sweating drops of blood, a condition known as hematidrosis, a mixture of sweat and bloods which would be excreted out of the pores of the skin only in the most extreme agony. That's what Jesus was dealing with. 
But it was more than just physical suffering and the anticipation of physical suffering. Jesus also knew the deeper significance of his sufferings. And that's pictured by an image he uses here, the cup. In the Old Testament, the cup was a cup of punishment associated with God's wrath, God's anger over sin. Those who most infuriated God would someday drink his cup of wrath. Oftentimes in the prophets and even in the Psalms, we hear about this this cup being given to nations that have been tormenting Israel. Or sometimes even, God talks about how Israel is going to have to drink the cup of punishment because of her sin. Jesus, of course, had never sinned. And yet he knew that on him the sins of all the people of the world would be laid. And his punishment would not be just death, but hell, separation from the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus knew exactly what he was getting into, physically, but also spiritually, emotionally, psychologically. And so he's praying a very real prayer. And we see that in his human flesh, his human flesh was crying out, and his desire was not to have to go through the suffering. And yet he willed the will of God. He willed the will of God. He made God's will his priority. And he put his lips to the cup, put God's will into action. So when Jesus teaches his disciples and us to pray, may your will be done, he knew full well what that would mean for him, what it might mean for us. So the disciple who prays this prayer, this particular petition, may your will be done, is urging God to, be, to continue to be involved and accomplish his divine will on earth and, one, to use me. It's to pray, Jesus, continue to rule this world and use me as you do so. And then secondly, let it happen first in me. Jesus, come and rule my life that I may always put your will first and live it out actively in my life. And we must never forget that personal application because it's so often easy to look at other people and say they're not doing God's will. But we also have to look in the mirror and say, have I accepted God's kingship over my life to the point where I am seeking to continue to do God's will? Is that our prayer when we pray the Lord's Prayer? Would you join me in a short prayer? God's will. Nothing more. Nothing less nothing else. Amen. Would you join me in asking God to have his way in our lives, to exert his kingship over us, and to allow his will to be done through us and offer ourselves to be willing participants in that. Have thine own way, Lord. We'll we'll sing the four stanzas, and would you stand as we sing together?